Welcome to Valley Talk. I'm your host, Heather Stark. We here at Valley Talk have been trying to interview a number of candidates for our upcoming election. One of those candidates is for the 5th District, and she is Ingrid Anderson. Ingrid, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Now, Ingrid, we, we, I have to say we, we tried to schedule this before and you were not feeling very well. And as a nurse at Overlake Hospital, I suspect, do you catch everything? Is it like having, you know, a, a, a child in school where they bring home everything and you catch everything? And they're over at the you know, and you're driving for, for a month. <laughs> after after working in the ER for over a decade, my immune system was definitely boosted. Uh, however, since I have been working day and night between work and the campaign and being a mom, I'm not getting much sleep. So I do tend to catch things when I'm exposed now. Yes, yes. Well, you know, you can't. You can only burn the candle at so many ends. I've discovered years exactly. ago. Exactly. Well, exactly. You certainly have. You certainly have taken on a challenge running against a uh, two-term incumbent um, for the 5th Legislative District as a senator. Can you tell me about your previous political experience? Yeah, sure. So I wasn't a political person for a very long time. Um, And I think uh, over the last four years or so, many of us have woken up to the need to be activists. I uh, before thought that the best thing that I could do was be a nurse for my community and advocate on policy issues within my own hospital so that we could deliver better patient care. And I came to become active because uh, I had to take my own hospital to arbitration over rest breaks. We were working 12 and 16 hour shifts, not getting breaks. And I found that the, you know, the data shows that patient outcomes are severely compromised when a nurse is fatigued because we are unable to catch medical errors. Um, and so this is a big deal for our community. So I was able to win that with the help of my union. But uh, what I found when I was going to Olympia and uh, helping you know, educate new nurses is that nurses across the state were having problems getting rest breaks. So I became active in that part, trying to lobby other representatives in the House and the State Senate to get this. And ultimately, I became the vice chair of the Washington State Nurses Association Political Action Committee because I wanted to uh, elevate some of the issues that I saw in our healthcare system and try to get a little bit more leverage so that when I did go to talk to representatives, that we were able to come together and pass meaningful legislation that really translated to improved outcomes in the healthcare field as well as workers' rights. So that's really how I got started, is just seeing the deep structural issues in our healthcare system and knowing that we needed somebody who understood the issues and how it translated to direct patient care. So that's why I started becoming active. Okay. So clearly you have a healthcare background and um, yeah. not a, and, and forgive me for saying, but not an extensive political background, at least as far as running for elected office. Um, Correct. And so this must be quite a learning experience for you. Um, I'll tell you, uh, quite honestly, I, I ran for elected office once in my lifetime, and it was for school board. And I made a decision afterwards that if I ever, ever had the notion that I should run for political office again, somebody should just shoot me. Um, because it's a brutal <laughs> process. It's a brutal process. Um, it is. You're jumping in with both feet for a senatorial election. How are you feeling about that now that you're almost through it? I feel really good because I feel like I have seen not just issues within the healthcare field, but issues within my own community for for a while now. 
And I, I always thought that I could trust the representatives to make the best call for my, my community. But as I started to become more aware of some of the barriers that we were having trying to pass healthcare reform, I started to pay more and more attention to the other issues that were happening and involving my own district. And I felt that it was time that we had somebody who would step up and, and be a true voice for the people who lived here, not just the special interest groups and the corporations. And so I thought mm. it, it, it was time to step up and do more. I felt like I could no longer sit back and watch the issues that I was seeing when I'd go to Olympia to give testimony and, and such. I could not sit back anymore and just say this is acceptable because you know, as, as many people know, when you have a kid and you're involved with the community, you tend to see things in a different vantage point. If I want to leave this community for my son, this even better than what I had when I was growing up. And so I think we need somebody who's rooted here and who understands the values of the district and somebody who will fight tirelessly for, for the people here. Mm-hmm. Um, well, and that's the rub, isn't it, uh, to talk about the values of the district, um, because every candidate says that he or she represents the values of the district. Yeah. So what exactly does that mean? What are the values that you are talking about? Well, one of the things that I have seen time and time again from the incumbent is he takes a lot of money from major corporations, predatory lenders, pharmaceutical companies, insurance companies, um, a lot of big major corporations. Very little of his money that he raises actually comes from constituents in the district or even around the district, you know, neighboring districts. And when I was going to Olympia and giving testimony, I would also see other issues and bills and see him voting against things like our schools and our environment. Um, and I felt like when I would see people giving testimony against these this good legislation and see that they were also his the backers of his campaign, I couldn't help but wonder if he's really just beholden to these groups versus understanding what it's like to live here, understanding the, the barriers that working people are actually going through right now. I've seen neighbor after neighbor get priced out of this district because they can't okay. no longer afford it here. I'm going to interrupt sure. you here though, so I can follow up on some of the things that you've said. Um, you have yeah. just kind of you know, pointed out uh, what, you, what you view as the sources for funding for your opponent. Yeah. But what are your sources for funding? Where is your money coming from? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. So for my direct, there's two different parts of funding for a campaign. There's the money that I fundraise, and then there's also something called the independent expenditures, and I'll talk about that next. The money that I am raising is primarily all from local uh, individuals within this region, um, in the King County area primarily. And I also am taking money from uh, union PACs. These union PACs is something that my opponent calls special interest, but those are our teachers, our laborers, our nurses, our grocery store workers. And in order to qualify to get that money and that endorsement, I have to go through a series of interviews, and applications, and it's the people who are working on these front lines who are talking to me about their values, and they're the ones who are deciding that I meet their same uh, value set, and they're the ones who are deciding that I qualify for that donation to my campaign or that endorsement. So that is all from working people, um, all the money that does come from unions. And so I'm proud to have that money, but also a lot of grassroots funding. I don't mean to be contentious here, but I, I must say yeah. uh, you're pointing out 
I don't know. I mean, I have a business, and I and mm-hmm. I'm not endorsing one candidate or the other. Actually, I'm not even in your district, but I have a business, and from what you're saying, it almost sounds. And I don't mean to sound contentious here, but I just want to clarify because it does sound like, okay, well, my opponent is being supported by um, businesses, but businesses are made up of oh, people. Oh no, I'm not. I'm okay with that. Businesses are made up of people, and it makes it sound. I'm talking like, about. I'm not talking about small businesses. I think that is the foundation of our communities. I'm talking about major predatory lenders or pharmaceutical companies. Um, I'm talking about people who have a lot of money of lobbyists who are already representing them in Olympia versus the everyday people who don't have that. But surely I have nothing wrong against small businesses. I mean, some of the largest um, uh, influencers in Olympia are the unions. So I guess I'm confused because, well, I, I, I'm confused because I'm, I'm not understanding how you are differentiating your sources of funding. Um, yeah, sure. Not, not, so, not because of the actual business or individual who writes the check, but because of what, who that business or individual is. Are you saying that most of your, your funding comes from King County? Are you then inferring that your opponent is getting funding primarily from outside of King County? You know, I'm not sure where all the businesses have their, their capital base, but Bank of America isn't what I would consider, you know, a local funder and not somebody who necessarily represents the people, but a small, a small group of shareholders and their interests. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a big difference. Okay. I, all right. We're going to let that go. Um, okay. So um, uh, my original question was, uh, you know, whether it was uh, an intimidating thing to run for a Senate office, first crack out of the box. And you have identified certain issues that you're running for, obviously health care. Um, but do you want to talk specifically about health care and COVID, why that has become, because that certainly has become a political issue. So do you want to talk a little bit about your stance on that and, and uh, what you would do yeah. differently from what's being done right now? Yeah. So I think with the, what the state legislature did in the last session was, was actually pretty good considering the lack of knowledge we had on COVID. But uh, when we go to session next uh, year, we are going to need some different kind of expertise and some different knowledge base so that we can see that the legislation that is being proposed doesn't just look good on paper, but translates to actual improved outcomes in our community. And it's hard to understand what that is unless you've seen firsthand what the structural issues are that we're looking at. So part of that is looking at um, do we have the proper resources to fund our public health department? We have an amazing public health department, but unless they're properly supported, we can't do accurate contact tracing. We can't help do public service announcements to help reduce the spread of COVID. And we can't look at the different structural data, or, you know, the data and the errors of different regions within the state and how we can implement a more targeted approach. So it's not just the acute care at the hospital that we need to look at, but it's also the outside of the hospital and the primary care access and the testing access and not just tests in the, of themselves, but the rapid testing that we desperately need because many people cannot afford to be isolated um, at their home for seven days while they're waiting for a pending test. And there still is a shortage of that. There's still a great shortage of PPE. 
in order to cover healthcare providers, teachers, frontline workers. I personally have known two nurses now who have died from COVID unnecessarily because they did not have the proper PPE that they needed to protect themselves. And given that was more towards the beginning of this issue, it, in the fall, it's, it's easy to presume that our numbers are gonna start ticking up significantly and we're gonna have some of the same issues going through to the next spring. And yet the governor has just uh, loosened up a lot of restrictions on um, um, gatherings and uh, businesses uh, and, and how many people they can have. How do you see that in view of the uh, fact that you are, are in view of what you just expressed that we're likely to see even more COVID in the coming months? Yeah, I think, you know, we, it's, it's a constant balance of how do you, you know, mitigate your risk. And I do think that people are getting much better at wearing masks and being more compliant at social distancing. So that does allow for some flexibility. But we also, what we have to be careful of is in the fall and the colder months, we start convening more indoors and that's what puts us at a higher risk. I do believe that we will use the data that we're seeing and if we need to make accommodations for that, we will. But we also need our economy to to survive this this pandemic, which is is here for a while at this point. So it's a constant uh, waxing and waning of, of you know evaluating and, and mitigating that risk. And I do think it's important to be fluid with that so that we can get our small businesses open, but also so that we're still maintaining the safety of our of, of our communities. But I do think that the fact that most people are getting more and more comfortable with wearing masks and keeping a distance and being more aware of basic hygiene is, is really helping. Um, it's when we're all together in a closed space that we're at higher risk. Okay, you mentioned that um, a level, different level of expertise will be needed during the next session uh, of the legislature next year. I've, since mm -hmm. COVID started, I've interviewed several um, elected officials at the beginning, most were assuming that there would be a special session called. Um, then mm -hmm. when it became clear that there would not be a special uh, session called, there's been some murmurings from just about everyone I've interviewed uh, of not understanding or expressing that there should be a special session. And I'm talking about people who are Democrats as well as Republicans. Um, what's your feeling about the special session? You just kind of glossed over that. So do yeah. you think there should have been a special session? You know, I think this is something that I don't have the inside knowledge on because I am not a current sitting elected official. So they are all having these conversations that I have only heard secondhand about. So I cannot speak to it in the same capacity. Um, I do know from what I've heard was that the concern was is that the root of the special session was only to make budgetary cuts. Um, and, and they were worried that this would really compromise some of our most marginalized community members um, who are really dependent on certain things. Um, so this is also just secondhand knowledge because I'm not included in these conversations, right? So that is one of the concerns that I heard was time and time again that people were willing to have a special session if it was holistic and not just looking at making cuts. And even though the, you know, we are projected to have a huge shortfall, with the last uh, revenue projection, it's half of what we thought we were going to be looking at even just several months ago. And we also don't know how much the federal package, our next federal package will be. So we do need to be careful of where we're making cuts, and we don't want to make them before we actually need them. However, I also think that it, 
it would have been reasonable to have a special session if we were addressing health care, if we were addressing how do we support our small businesses. I think that's something that a lot of people are, are, are looking for guidance for. So you're, you're saying that because in your understanding and what you heard from the periphery, that a special session would only have been called solely to deal with budget cuts? that it was probably a good thing to not have it? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but is that what I heard you say? That's, that's, what, I've, that's what I've heard from multiple elected officials. But, again, I'm not on those phone calls, unfortunately. So. Okay. All right. As a layperson, I, I just, I mean, obviously the legislature needs to deal with the budget. Um, but in the midst of all this, I find it hard to believe that that would be the only topic that they would have a special session for. Um, so, but again, I'm a layperson, so I'm I'm way out of the loop. <laughs> I'm on the outside I, I, too. I'm on the outside of this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so but I'm, but I'm I think so we do need to. Yeah, as as a civilian, I also am like, why are we not coming together to find out how we can have better uh, distribution of some of the federal CARES money for our small businesses so that they can survive? And how can we clarify some of our health? Um, health directives and, and what tr- direction we need to take. So as a community member, I was wondering about that as well. Yeah. And I've heard uh, several lay people expressing concern about, you know, the lack of a special session and, the, you know, the representation and all that kind of stuff. So, okay. So yeah. we talked a little bit about health care and COVID. Um, and you are, uh, and I kind of cut you off before when you started going there, um, and about affordability and the cost of living in the Snoqualmie Valley. Um, yeah. What we're going to do is we're going to take a brief break, Ingrid, if you don't mind, and I'll let you go get a drink of water for that cough, and we'll uh, give some messages out to our listeners. And we will be right back on Valley Talk, right here on Valley 104.9 FM. You're listening to Valley 104.9 FM, your Valley community radio station. Remember to join us at 1 p.m. on Sunday for Animal Radio. Animal Radio is America's most listened-to pet show. The nearly two-hour celebration of our pets is hosted by veterinary talent Hal Abrams and Judy Francis. So tune in, 1 p.m. Sunday, Animal Radio. What inspires an author to write a book? How do novels and plays get written? Why are some books impossible to put down? Hi, I'm Richard Walensky, and I'll be speaking with authors getting to the heart of their creativity and their research on Bookwaves Sunday afternoon at 3.30 on Valley 104.9 FM. To Valley Talk, I'm Heather Stark, and with me is a very special guest. We have Ingrid Anderson. Ingrid, is uh, is it fair to call you a newbie politician? <laughs> Would that be fair? Sure. <laughs> I am fair. That's fair. Okay. Ingrid is a newbie politician. She is running as a Democrat against an incumbent, Mark Mullet, and um, that's for the 5th Legislative District. And uh, he is also a Democrat. So we have two Democrats running against each other. However, you have in- gained the endorsement of the governor. Um, and yes, do I you have. have any comments about that? Yeah, so I think that I'm first off I'm very excited to have that endorsement. I think as somebody who's new to politics, it takes twice the amount of work if not more 
to secure an endorsement from any group or individual. So I'm very proud of that. And I think through our conversations, we really feel like there is not enough healthcare perspective in our state Senate at this time, and that we needed that healthcare background even before COVID hit, and now more than ever, we really need that, that different level of knowledge to make sure that the legislation that we're passing is meaningful and will translate to improved outcomes for our community. So let's talk about affordability. Now, I've lived in this uh, area for quite some time, and um, boy, (laughs) boy. I know. Um, Yeah, and uh, some of it's good. Some of it is very good, um, but some of it is bad. And one of the things uh, that we have that makes it so difficult right now is affordability. People are being priced out of their homes. And you have some feelings about that, but I want you to also, as you're talking about that affordability issue, to talk about how rural areas have a, an older population than urban areas yeah. in our state. They think, I think they do countrywide. We have hardly a week goes by that I don't hear from another senior citizen that's being priced out of their home, even if their home is paid for, because the taxes have yep. gone up so high. Yep. All of the cities that I'm familiar with indicate that seniors want to age in their homes. And Mm -hmm. yet, in my view, from what I've seen, there seems to be a push to not solve the problem of affordability of housing, especially for seniors, but to start thinking and brainstorming how can we get these seniors into high rises. And I'll be honest with you. I mean, if it comes to that for me, I'd just soon just walk in front of the bus as to go to a high rise in Seattle or some urban area. So I'd like you, as you're talking about affordability, to not talk just about families, but to also talk about the problem with seniors and affordability. I am so glad you're addressing this. So I live in rural Snoqualmie. It's unincorporated King County. Um, you've, you're familiar with the area. I live by the old Norman Brook Farm, if you know where that is, uh, or remember where it was back in the day. And this is an area that is, I feel so lucky to live in. And honestly, I couldn't afford it today if I had to buy my house today as a nurse with a husband who also works in healthcare. I mean, that's how outrageous the housing has gotten out here, let alone the taxes like you're talking about. And in my neighborhood, uh, when I first moved to this was able to buy this house, um, I saw so many of my neighbors, they're almost all seniors, so many of them talking about how they could no longer afford to live here and didn't know where they could go from here because they couldn't move east of the mountains because then they wouldn't have access to their family who they absolutely needed to help with their daily, you know, grocery trips and, and going to the doctor. They need to be close to their resources and their network of people but they were time and time again getting priced out of this area and it's been heartbreaking to see people that um, i don't know if i told you i live in the house next door to the house i grew up in where my parents still live today so i've known these people almost all my life and to see them having to leave just rips my heart out because they are such a foundation to our community and i think things that we need to look at is how can we protect these people who have worked so hard to create the community that we get to live in today? How can we protect them so that they can stay in their home and that they can keep their network of people around them? And I think some things, there are some protections for seniors, but there's not enough. There's not nearly enough. 
I think we really need to look at how can we cap property taxes on these on this population so that they can stay here even after they pay off their home and and they're not displaced. It's like a different form of gentrification and and it's unacceptable to me because we not only lose out on a great community member, we miss out on that knowledge and that uh, multi-generational uh, living arrangements with lots of different people in the, in the neighborhood that really create a different kind of community. So that's something that I think we absolutely need to look at. Okay. So um, you're advocating that we study it or what do you, what do you mean? I think we, we should, I think we should find uh, ways that we can cap their property taxes so that at the time of retirement, there's only so much it will ever go up so that because their budgets are staying the same all through the rest of their life for the most part. They're not having these new great sources of income, yet the cost of living continues to go up exponentially. So how can we at the time of retirement look at capping that, that property tax increase um, and finding a way so that we're not pricing them out of their home? So it can only go up a certain percentage for this, this population. Okay. Um, next issue that you have on your site is um, education, schools. Let's talk about that a little bit. What do you see as the biggest issues uh, with and problems and uh, things that are coming up for um, the schools, for education, and what do you think we need to do about it? There's so much. Do you want me to sp speak specifically to the issues that are at hand with COVID in our schools opening or the systemic no. issues that we've had? Yeah, you can talk about school openings, and I'd also like you to talk about uh, the sex ed bill that is going to be up for a public vote uh, uh, during our next election. I'd like you to talk about classrooms and uh, whether or not uh, children need to return to classrooms at this point and at what point. So just the whole thing. Just yeah, yeah. So <laughs> I'll just I'll start with the COVID and opening because that's a that's obviously on the front of all of our minds. So. I have a son who is five. He just started at Snoqualmie Elementary, the school that I went to when I grew up. But obviously, he has to go virtually at this time. And this has been a huge barrier because I do not have the luxury of working from home and helping him through his education. So this has been a big issue for my family as well because we have to go to the hospital to work to take care of our family you know, our community. So who do we have to help us? So we've really had to piecemeal some stuff and we're lucky enough to have great neighbors who have helped us. But think about how many moms out there are single moms who have to go to work. I mean, where are they at? Um, how are they putting food on the table right now? But at the same time, we physically are unable to let all of the children go back to school in a safe way. There is a lot of studies coming out now that shows that there is permanent neurological damage that some of these kids are having when they have COVID. They may not present with this acute, severe symptoms that many adults do, but there are other underlying things that we are finding out that they may be at risk for. And not just that, but they can be carriers, and then they go home and see their parents who then see grandparents. So it's a huge risk putting them all in school in large numbers. I do like that the schools are trying to find a way to do a hybrid model and see which, which families are willing to stay at home and which families absolutely need to go to the school because we may find over time that that allows for a lower amount of students physically in the classroom so that we can start you know, slowly triaging and, and phasing in different groups. 
I do think we need to look at our early learners and special ed groups as the priority at first because they've been shown to be struggling the most with the online learning. And I can attest to that with the son of a kindergartner that it is very difficult to get them to sit in front of a computer um, as well as the risk of having that much screen time has other neurological implications. So I do think things that we need to do is find out how we can encourage those who can stay online to stay online so that those who do not have that luxury are able to go back sooner. And then also we need to make sure that we are not putting these kids into close of proximity. We also need to make sure that we're having protection for our teachers and that means providing them with adequate PPE as well, um, which is a big issue. So if you're looking at a kindergarten or a first grader, it is a high likelihood if you have even just 15 students in a class that that teacher is going to have a high risk of exposure. And it's not okay to put them at this huge risk either. So we need to look at how can we properly space? How can we get good PPE? Do we have little plexiglass barriers around certain desks? How can we make this work? as normal as it can be with the knowledge of knowing that it will not be normal for a while. But we need to have people at the table trying to make those decisions. Um, and I, I do like that the school districts have been doing that and trying to figure something out. But it may be a while before we have an effective vaccine. So that's something that we have to just face as part of our current reality is how can we start triaging certain groups back into our schools. Other issues of schools that have been um, an issue even before this is classroom sizes that we need to look at. And obviously with the budget shortfalls that we're looking at, uh, we're probably not going to make any headway on that right away. But that's something that over time we need to look at. We also need to look at our standardized testing systems and are these really best serving our students or are we only teaching to a test instead of actually giving them diverse learning opportunities uh, that help shape their brain and help them think in a critical um, way. So those are other things. Other things that we need to look at in our school system is the mental health care of our children. I have seen for many years now an increase in mental health uh, issues, including suicidal ideations and anxiety and, uh, and defiant syndrome and other issues in students. And it's, it's, the uptick is significant. And so one of the things I think would be really helpful is if we actually started getting mental health counselors into our school, started doing different screening systems so we could try to identify those kids who are at risk of suicide before it gets to be too late. Those are some things that are really important. You talked about referendum 90. I think one of the things, there's a lot of misinformation on this uh, right now. I think one of the things that's really important to know is that each school district gets to choose their own curriculum and that's in part with the PTA consultation and the school board. So parents absolutely have a right to choose which curriculum they want for their school district. So every school district will have its own curriculum, what they choose. And then even then, um, a parent can opt out of this. So no child will be forced to do something that a parent is uncomfortable with and that the parents actually have a lot of say in what kind of studies are, are their child will be exposed to. And I think the key part to know is that this is age appropriate, inclusive, comprehensive sexual health education. It's not sex ed. It talks about all kinds of important things like the um, like consent and 
I don't know if I told you this, but I have been a sexual assault nurse examiner for over a decade now. And some of the things that I have seen time and time again is the, the gray area that people have over consent and how to say no. And this is a real issue. And so something that we need to start talking about with our kids at an early age is just consent and the ability to have to govern your own body. The data also shows that when children have good language and are able to say no, they are also less at risk for um, sexual assault from an, an adult predator. So I think that's also something okay, that is I'm really gonna, important that we start talking to you about. I'm going to play devil's advocate here. And that sure. is, um, I'm, uh, do you th- I've raised children. Um, and mm-hmm. do you think that these are not conversations that parents have with their children? Or do you think that they, they, those conversations exist and they need to be supplemented? Or I, I'm just asking you to clarify I sure hope that families are having those conversations, but it isn't all just about sexual assault. It's the um, right to govern your own body is really an important conversation to have with children at a young age, Um, but it does not always happen. It doesn't. Mm -hmm. Okay, and so you think by uh, offering this in the school, then it would always happen? I don't know. Uh, Unless somebody opted out of the curriculum. Yeah, so... Okay. All right. So the parent could opt out of the, the, the parent yeah. presumably who would not be having these discussions normally would maybe be the parent who would opt out of the curriculum and that child would then get it, his education the same way all the rest of us get it in the playground. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but okay. also, also I, I would hope that I would hope that if most kids understood these, these basic rights of it's my body, uh, we would also see less other other things, you know, less fighting, less um, pushing people around, less, you know, those kinds of unwanted touch goes in much more ways than just sexual assault. Okay. Uh, let's briefly talk about your issues about the environment. Um, what do you think are the important things that we need to be considering about our environment in the, the coming biennium? Sure, there's there is a lot that we have to be worried about, especially if you've seen all the smoke in our air with our forest health and forest management. I was just t- talking to Hillary Franz the other day about the different things that we could do to expedite our forest health, um, which has been grossly underfunded for a long time. So we are not doing the 10-year plan and the 20-year plan as we could. We have very limited amount of Uh, actual forest fighters on staff and limited training for these people if and limited amount of on-call forest fighters. Um, So when the fires do happen, they happen quick and they happen in a severe way and we have a limited capacity to respond, especially because we are one of the last states to on the coast to have the fires. So usually it's California, then Oregon, then us. So usually they are at full firefighting um, effect by the time we have our needs come up. So it's harder to get uh, other states to come and assist us. So looking at our forest health and fire management is going to be essential uh, to protect our clean air. Other issues that I think are really important to look at is to pass the clean fuel standards, which is passed in the House two years in a row and continues to stall in the Senate. Uh, The way that uh, our fossil fuels are right now, uh, it directly increases the risk of uh, or the amount of particulate matter in the air. 
that we are breathing. And this shows in the data that it shows an increased risk of death due to heart attacks, asthma, atrial fibrillation, COPD, it exasperates these issues. And so if we pass this clean fuel standard, we would have an immediate reduction in this particulate matter. And we would see an immediate reduction in things like childhood asthma and the risk of heart attack. And so that would have a profound impact on our community um, in the air that we breathe every day. Do you know why it hasn't passed in the, in the in previous sessions? There's a, a couple of people in the state Senate, uh, the opponent in particular, who uh, wants to tie it to other legislation and, and will not bring it to the table unless it's tied to other legislation. Okay. And, of course, that's not unique to that particular issue. I mean, that happens all the time. Yes. Yeah. Uh, not only in Olympia, but in Washington, D.C. So, um, okay. Um, Very briefly, um, we've got about two minutes before we take our next break. Um, You list on your webpage that gun safety is an issue. And can you explain um, your stance on gun safety and what we need? I mean, I don't think you'd find anybody who would say no guns wouldn't be safe. Um, So (laughs) that's a given that we all want gun safety. But could you give me in a couple of sentences how you envision the problem and how it could be uh, exacerbated? Yeah, so I am a gun owner and I am a big advocate of our Second Amendment rights, but I also see as a nurse time and time again the risk of guns and uh, the, the amount of death that we have. Uh, and a lot of this is related to mental health. So I think there are a lot of different things that we could do related to like voluntary uh, signing over of a gun if you're in a, in a bad spot, different ways that we can change legislation to target people who are suicidal, as well as um, finding ways to incentivize people to have proper storage so that kids are not uh, accidentally, and I know we have passed some legislation, but we need to incentivize it for gun owners, finding ways to help get them the resources to lock up and secure their weapons properly so kids are not having access to them. And there's a lot of other things that we can do, but in two sentences, that's my okay. synopsis. All right. Um, that, and that also, your response to that also intrigues me, uh, having a father who killed himself with a gun. I'm not sure you can really prevent that by locking up a gun. That's something I'd have to Not all of it. More. Yeah. Not all of it, but okay. there are a lot of times I've seen as a nurse where I would have the ability to um, make a report to a police when I know somebody is actively suicidal and has a gun. But there's a lot of laws mm-hmm. that prevent that. So I think we need to explore, like, how can we protect people's privacy, but also in an imminent danger, um, is there other forms of extreme risk protection orders that might be um, something that we can look at? All right. Thank you for that. And it's time for our next break. So I appreciate how quickly you address that issue. Uh, when I'm looking, I have one eye on the clock and the other eye on my list of questions, I'm going, oh, okay, how, how fast can we talk? <laughs> so I appreciate that, Ingrid. Okay, we're going to take a break. We're going to give you some, uh, some important information uh, outside of this program, and then we will be back in a couple minutes. I'm Heather Stark, and you are listening to Valley Talk on Valley 104.9 FM. You're listening to Valley 104.9 FM, your station for Valley Talk and Info. Hi, I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian, investigative nutritionist, and host of Food Sleuth Radio, the show that helps us think beyond our plates connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture, and find food truth. If you care about the food you eat, then join me on Sundays at 3 p.m. on Valley 104.9 FM for Food Sleuth Radio. 
There are three good reasons why you want to listen to the children's hour. One is because it has nice music, and two is because there are kids in it, and three is because there's lots of good, nice stories that you might want to hear. Educational entertainment for the whole family. I love the children's hour. Kids Public Radio. Sundays at 10 a.m. on Valley 104.9 FM. The Valley Talk. I'm your host, Heather Stark. With me is a candidate for Senate for the 5th Legislative District in Washington. And that, of course, includes Carnation and uh, the whole Snoqualmie, most of the Snoqualmie Valley, uh, all the way into Issaquah and all the way down to, um, is it, I know it goes lots of South Ingrid. Ravensdale, Black Diamond, Pockets of Renton, (laughs) Maple Valley. So that's a big district, and it's a diverse district, I think. Um, So Mm -hmm. let's talk about a couple of things having to do with that. You know, when um, people in this district, we already talked about the rural areas tend to have older uh, citizenry, and we talked about that in regard to housing. But can we talk about it briefly in regards to health care as well? Um, it's harder for uh, older people uh, because our community hospitals are pretty much a done deal. We've pretty much consolidated everything over the last few years into more urban areas. And so if you get sick incarnation, probably what's your, what's your best hope, I guess, to get to, to Bellevue or to Kirkland for hospitals. And I, normally that probably works pretty well, but with COVID, um, we're seeing people maybe having to be moved a little bit faster. That being said, um, what do you see as a particularly rural response to health care? I'm sorry, I don't think I understand the question. What, what should we do to respond to that? Absolutely, spot on. Are you looking for like ideas on how we can address the rural issues? Well, do you see that as a rural issue? I, I interviewed the, I uh, do. Uh, representative, the rural representative from the Washington State um, uh, Hospital Association, and we talked about this at length. My concern is that with an older population, uh, with a, a situation like COVID, are we providing adequate health care to our rural communities and our rural citizenry? Most of the people who are elderly who do come down with COVID need hospitalization, Um, And in that capacity, we are lucky to, even though we don't have some hospitals right in the rural areas, we are lucky to be right next to some of the best hospitals in all of the U.S. Um, We have Swedish and Issaquah, we have Overlake and Bellevue, and those deliver most of the um, acute care needs for our population, which is amazing and, and is appropriate with COVID. What we do see problems with is other things that don't, that are more time sensitive. So heart attacks, strokes, those are the things that I have big concerns with for my neighbors because those have such uh, timely interventions that if you don't get to a, a facility that can provide the services you need in a timely manner, it will have a significant uh, poor outcome um, eventually. And so mm-hmm. <clears throat> while the other hospitals are, are okay for COVID, we also have a lack of primary care physicians. We have a lack of specialists that we can get our senior population to. And so that is a really important issue that I think we need to address. And part of it looks at how can we incentivize more providers to take stuff like Medicare and Medicaid 
so that it is not such a long wait when you do need to see a specialist. Um, there may be the issue of distance, but also we have to look at uh, time. And it is unreasonable to wait several months to see a specialist when you need somebody now. And it may not be acute enough to go to the hospital, but it doesn't mean you don't need urgent treatment of some kind. And there are ways that we can help incentivize providers to go ahead and open up their doors to different kinds of insurance carriers. Um, and looking at how we compensate them at a state level is an, a really important part of that conversation. Well, that's an interesting point since I just read that um, many uh, governmental agencies that um, control uh, um, Medicare, et cetera, not, I'm not talking necessarily at the state level, um, are actually reducing payments to physicians. And yeah, that's a big issue. So frequently. Yeah, and it always amazes me how. We, you know, I'm I'm Joe the garbage collector. I how would I like it if every two years they come back and say, by the way, you're going to get paid less. And yeah. yet, we right. have some healthcare people out there that have been doing this for decades now. Um, yeah. And then we we don't understand when they either can't or won't, or we consider them selfish for not taking the smaller payments, and just totally don't give any consideration whatsoever to the fact that they also have overhead. They also have employees they have to pay. Exactly. They have all these things. Um, exactly. So it's interesting to hear you say that. I'm not sure what you mean by incentivize because isn't our, you know, isn't the, let, let's face it, filthy looper is our, pretty much one of our biggest incentivizers. So how, how are you? Pretty, pretty much all of healthcare is regulated by our, our legislation, either at a federal level or a state level. And there's a lot of different mm -hmm. things you can do to incentivize different providers to take different kinds of, of coverages. And I would have to explore with my colleagues of what they were comfortable with. But things that we need to look at is how can we increase our reimbursement rates? How can we potentially offer different tax breaks? Um, we also do a lot of our education and licensure through the state, all of that goes through the state. So can we make different accommodations to reduce the barriers that some people have while still providing amazing health care? Can we also find ways to get more mid-level providers like physicians assistants and nurse practitioners out to our communities working hand-in-hand -hand with these specialists? so that there isn't extended wait times. And there's a lot of different things that we can do at a state level because all of our healthcare is, is regulated through the Department of Health mm -hmm. and our, our legislation. So we do have a lot of ability to do things that don't just cost money to the, to the budget, but other ways that we can uh, look at our licensure, our education, um, and other ways that we can incentivize working with schools, giving tuition reimbursement to people going into specialized fields that we're in desperate need of. Um, there's a lot of things that we can do. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. Um, we have a few minutes left, about 10 minutes as a matter of fact. I want to talk about unemployment in this state. It has gotten a lot of press. It has gotten a lot of bad press. Um, I, so far, I haven't seen anybody being held accountable for anything that went wrong. Um, we're just told as citizens, well, it was hard, you know, it was difficult, we tried. Um, but I have to say, I, you know, and I don't have a dog in this fight as far as the director or anything like that, but I'm kind of confused because I don't think I ever remember a time when there was such a debacle that occurred where somebody's head didn't roll. Now, you could argue whether it was the right person's head that rolled, but somebody's head rolled. Um, and yet yeah. we don't see that with unemployment. What is your take on that? 
You know, and, and that's something that I don't have the inside knowledge on as a constituent. I often wonder the same thing. I was like, how can this be delivered in such a haphazard way and have so many different losses and not have some more answers? And maybe those answers are amongst other people that I am not privileged of knowing the details of. Um, but as a constituent, I too wonder how this was not implemented. And I understand that some of the delivery, it was such an insurgence and we didn't have the, enough staff and the capacity to deal with that. I get that. But there was also other things that continued to happen as time went on. So I think that I was surprised it didn't uh, resolve itself in a little bit of a different fashion and quicker. Um, and then the loss of money and some of the more predatory people who were going after false claims. Um, I, I'm not sure why that wasn't handled a little differently, but I also don't have inside knowledge to all that either. Would you, if you were elected, call for some sort of investigation? I think that's absolutely appropriate. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. And um, do you think, if you were elected, that you would have any issues? We've talked about gun safety. We've talked about unions. We've talked about all sorts of things. Um, but we haven't talked too much about sexual assault, domestic violence, and I asked uh, your uh, opponent about that. And I wonder <laughs> if you think we could be doing more in this state on those I issues. Do. And so what, I what do. would it be? So I have actually been a victim of domestic violence in the past. And so I have firsthand knowledge of the damage that it causes and how difficult it is uh, to get out. And while we do some things in an amazing way, um, such as as a nurse, every time I screen a patient, I ask them if they have any um, active domestic violence issues. If they are not alone and they're with somebody, I try to find a, an opportunity that they are alone, um, like if they go to the bathroom, to then ask them. And all of us as healthcare professionals actively do this, but that's still not enough to meet the needs of the community. And this is an issue, especially now, as everybody is quarantining at home, the risk of domestic violence does go up significantly. And it is hard to reach people when they're supposed to be quarantining at home. And I don't have all the answers to that, but I do know that we need and can do better. And that does look like public service announcements. It does look like having as you've seen in the bathroom, flyers on the wall. But we also have to have the resources that when somebody does call, that we are able to offer level, a level of support to them um, in a way that also protects their privacy because that is when a victim is at their highest risk. Okay. I want to also ask you if, I, if there's a particular issue or a question that you wish I had asked you that I didn't. You know, considering I'm pretty sick right now, uh, I think we covered everything that's important. <laughs> um, if I forgot something, it's because I am not at my 100% peak right now. Um, other things, though, that are super important to me is, the, uh, is addressing our mental health crisis right now. And we touched just a little bit on that, but uh, that is super important to me. Yeah, I've seen in your information that you are a supporter of NAMI. And I also yes. support that very, very much. So that was of interest to me. Why that organization? 
because they do so much good, not just for patients, but for family members of patients. One of the most difficult things is if you have a loved one who is going through mental health crisis and not knowing what to do, how you can support them, and also how you can take care of yourself. And NAMI does an amazing outreach. Um, one thing that I did not say is I am nearly done with my graduate degree to become a psychiatric nurse practitioner. And I did put that on hold for this, but I have seen a huge issue with uh, lack of access to providers in our community. And we have a Band-Aid system that you have to be in absolute crisis and imminently at risk of death before you can get access to a lot of, of the resources that we have, such as hospitalization. And so we're putting a little Band-Aid on something and often turning people away when they're coming to us saying, I need help. I know I can't continue on. It, it's going to be any day, but they don't meet the threshold needed to get the help that they're asking for. And so we often are waiting too long to give the help that people are asking for. And so there's a lot of opportunity there. Um, and also it's just more fiscally sensible to help somebody before they're in their absolute crisis moment. Um, I mean, it makes sense in so many different levels. Uh, it also doesn't just impact, like I said, the patient. It's their friends. It's their family. It has a huge systemic impact on our community when somebody is struggling with mental health. And if we can properly address this, we can also get people off the streets. We can help with substance abuse. We can get people to become productive members of our community again. And so the investment is, is amazing for what you get um, if we can help restructure our system and how we currently deal with mental health. We also have a lot of people in jail um, when really they're, they have nonviolent offenses and, and a lot of it stems back to the mental illness. Yet here we are paying to house them and feed them instead of getting them the mental health treatment that they need at a fraction of the cost. So there's a lot that, that we can said, do to fix this. Do you, that being said, do you think that there's any hope for Western State Hospital or is that just... Oh boy, I sure hope so because there's a lot of people who do need that long-term housing and sometimes I have seen in the ER where we would have patients there for weeks waiting for a bed at Western and we did not have the ability in the ER to give them the care that they needed, but there was no beds available. Um, there's a lot that needs to happen at Western to make it so that we're better serving our community. Ingrid, thank you so much for letting me grill you and for being gracious yeah. over that. Thank you for uh, giving this this interview, even though you're not feeling very well. So I thank you, and uh, much as I wish your, you. your opponent good luck, I'm also going to give you the good luck uh, wish at this point. And uh, please uh, stay in touch with us and let us know uh, how everything is going for you one way or the other after the election. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. And thank you for listening to Valley Talk, and thank you for listening to uh, Valley 104.9 FM. All of our interviews will be available on our website, valley1049.org, and you can review them if you'd like to hear more. And uh, you can always reach me at heather.stark at valley1049.org. Thank you for listening, and join us again next week.
Local people, local music, Valley 104.9 FM. Extinction Diaries. It is incredibly dark imagining the extinction of the largest rainforest and terrestrial carbon dioxide sink in the world, the Amazon, home to one in ten of all life on Earth where even the native people are being hunted, ambushed, and killed right along with the forest. It is a slaughter, and so far global governments fail to address the issue seriously except short bouts of condemnation. Words are not enough. Fires are horizon to horizon. If governments don't at least pay Brazil to not destroy the Amazon, then all layers of global leadership critically fail our children and future generations. Many scientists agree, if the Amazon loses even just another 5%, it'll be too late and the mighty lungs of planet Earth will basically warm and dry itself into a savanna. Then what? The future of forests and the future of children are the same. Standing forests need to be made more valuable than any reason to cut or burn them. If your leaders can bail out a pandemic, then they can save the Amazon, because without it, even a pandemic won't matter. My name is Rising Moon, and this is a Small World Radio production. The following newscast does not prescribe any medical advice, directly or indirectly, as a form of treatment for any medical problems without the advice of a physician or medical doctor. Welcome to That's Edible, I'm Daisy Oz. In this episode, I'll be presenting nature's serene sedative, valerian root. Many people suffer from insomnia in today's stressful world. Besides making one tired, insomnia can lead to more serious health conditions like high blood pressure, accidents, poor cognitive function, and health issues. Valerian root is a herb that has been used to treat insomnia, anxiety, and stress for hundreds of years, dating back to the second century. Let's take a closer look at this serene sedative, valerian root. Valerian is a flowering perennial native to Europe and Asia. Hippocrates, known as the father of medicine, recommended it for sleep disorders. Fast forward to 1982, where a double-blind study was conducted on 128 subjects, valerian was revealed to be just as effective as prescription sleep aids, plus it increased the quality of sleep. This sedative root has been researched extensively, and though it's not as potent as some prescriptions, valerian is safer and has fewer side effects, like it doesn't have hangover or mental grogginess effects. Valerian also encourages deeper sleep because it reduces the time it takes to get to sleep and decreases motor activity during sleep. It is considered by many practitioners as the best natural insomnia treatment, and I can attest to this as it helps me sleep sound and deep. There are active components in this root that release the GABA receptors in the brain, which is what helps people fall asleep easier and stay sleeping longer. This tranquilizing root is also taken to treat anxiety and panic attacks because of its increased GABA production. And a study published in 2011 found that valerian root is also effective in treating OCD. Valerian is also a natural antispasmodic, so it relaxes muscles and joint pain, reduces blood pressure, treats migraines, and helps with menstrual cramps and menopause symptoms. And an awesome study on hyperactivity in children showed enhanced sleep, less impulsiveness, leading them to more calmness, focus, and feelings of happiness and satisfaction. What an amazing sedative from nature's backyard, valerian root. And yes, that's edible. My source for nature's serene sedative valerian root was obtained from herbslist.net. I'm Daisy Oz. Thanks for listening. Be brave and add some edible plant medicine to your diet for healthier living. Check out my archive shows and more at daisyoz.com. That's Edibles produced at Daisy Oz Productions in Chewila, Washington. 
My theme music was provided by Scott Holmes. Immerse yourself in the worlds of community media, sound, podcasting, and audio on Radio Survivor. Airing on Wednesday nights from 6 to 7 p.m. here on Valley 104.9 FM.